everyone, I'm Alice. And I'm Dan. And welcome to the final part of my analysis of The Wall. After 12 hours of scripting, likely more actually, two and a half hours of recording, and 10 hours of editing, minimum, we are finally here. So, fun fact, this analysis is twice as long as the album itself. You say that like it's unexpected. It slightly was, and I don't know how to feel about this anymore. Unexpected. Oh, I'm gonna make a 45 minute long episode. It wasn't supposed to be 45 minutes in the beginning, and then we just sort of went there. So welcome to another likely 40 minute episode of The Wall. Like last time, I'm just going to jump right into the disclaimers and a very brief review of important themes and topics discussed thus far. So as I've said time and time again, The Wall is dark. But I think that this side might be the darkest side this album has to offer, largely because this synthesizes all of the album's previous themes, but adds anti-Semitism and suicide and a few others to them. Oh, wonderful. We will be covering drug abuse, anti-Semitism, homophobia, racism, war, mental illness, infidelity, child abuse, although not so much that one, and suicide. Please be warned, and I will be giving specific warnings for certain songs, but I have a feeling that if you made it this far, you've probably watched at least one other part, so I am going to skim a little more than I usually do with my summary of terms and whatnot. As the title suggests, Pink Floyd is the band that made this album, and one of the band members, Roger Waters, was the lead vocalist and mastermind behind it. A lot of these concepts explored in this album were actually based on his own life. The Wall is a concept album, which basically means that it tells the story or has a unifying theme. In this case, The Wall is about a rock star named Pink. This album was broken up into four sides for four main arcs, and over the first three sides, we've seen Pink grow up and isolate himself behind this mental wall. Things like his father's death in World War II, his abusive school, overprotective mother, and his wife's infidelity have all been major contributing factors. Big sad. Yeah, well, Pink has some incredibly unhealthy coping mechanisms as well, usually involving escapism, like drug usage, the television, and potentially adultery. Mm. Actually, less potentially, definitely adultery. And I didn't really touch on the TV much last time, but it's basically a stand-in for the toxicity of pop culture and the lack of emotional connection to what you see on a television screen versus the gratification of an in-person, real-life connection. There's also definitely something to be said, like, I know that Hollywood and fame are generally pretty awful both now and then. Being famous definitely did not help this man. Oh, absolutely not. And actually, this television screen did translate to the barrier between stars and their fans and the rest of the world, so that was definitely one of the themes of having this telly in there in the first place, so spot on. Pink also is established to have depressive phases and bursts of anger. Ah, this band just throwing lethal amounts of mental illness onto their self-insert character. This is fine. They were basically like, what if I took my life and then made the character a hundred times worse? Woohoo! Which is great. Um, so obviously these depressive phases, bursts of anger, mental instability, do contribute to his status as an unreliable narrator, though this has been a running theme even before these phases. So, not everything that Pink tells us may be exactly true. And I've touched on this before, but this concept is really played up in side four. Some of the wall's biggest themes are individuality, self-isolation, the longing to return home to a simpler time, and the detrimental effects of isolation on one's psyche, usually symbolized by these worms of mental decay. Enough exposition, let's jump right into this. The songs in order are The Show Must Go On, in the flesh. Without the question mark this time. We have come full circle. Run like hell. Waiting for the worms. 
stop, then the trial and outside the wall. Let's start with The Show Must Go On. This song is comparatively acoustic. You're run-of-the-mill piano, acoustic guitar, drums, and a chorus in the background. And it actually sounds quite nice, though a bit melancholic. Possibly like nostalgic for times gone by, with more traditional instruments rather than like electric ones and stuff. Precisely, actually. <laughs> ha ha ha, my brain. This theatricality and this baseline of the background music does continue with this parallel of Pink feeling that he has to act out a role and put on a disguise for his audience, which I think is relatable for all of us to at least some extent, though mm. hopefully not to Pink's extent. <laughs> we hope. D- yeah, because Pink's personas are more hollow, and they serve as a way to protect him, and they're generally influenced by the turmoil of his mental health issues. That's just called having emotions. I mean, this is more the mask you put on to pretend that you weren't feeling emotions or to avoid them entirely. Which is not a good coping mechanism that anyone should swear by. Yeah. In the song lyrically, Pink and the chorus are singing to Pink's parents asking, must the show go on? Thusly the parallel with the title. You hear some repeated themes like how Pink wishes to return home to a simpler time when his father was alive and asking his overprotective mother to let him go. So again, to Dan's point, the more nostalgic sounding music. The most interesting lines, though, are, I didn't mean to let them take away my soul, but who is this them? It's rather ambiguous. It could be the audience that Pink puts on a mask to perform for, or the bricks in his wall, which have been driving him into isolation and only exacerbating his lack of individuality and his connection with others. But I'd venture that it's likely a combination of both. I mean, what about the people behind the scenes who are quote-unquote helping him be famous? Like the people who brought him the doctor on the last side of the album and tried to make him perform and stuff? Yeah, I don't think that was actually explicitly mentioned in the analyses that I read, but I was definitely wondering the same thing too. Uh, First thing that came to my mind was, ah, they're the music industry, that must be the them that they're talking about. So I have a feeling that that's also included. Mm -hmm. So these lyrics continue to delve a little bit more into Pink questioning whether he should really go through with his show, with this path in his life, and whether it's too late to turn back where his feelings have gone. But despite how badly he wants to turn from the situation, he presses on for better or worse. The song ends with the line, the show must go on. Roll credits? Mm. Uh, But yes, that is actually it for my analysis of the song. It's rather short, only one and a half minutes, and the point is pretty clear. You've probably spent more than twice as much time talking about the song than it actually lasts. How dare you call me out like this? I do what I want. Anyway, (laughs) the point is pretty clear. And Pink is about to perform a concert in a state of mental turmoil. Oh, who'd have guessed? Yeah, he's basically loaded on drugs right now and is really going through it, so understandable. Mm -hmm. So this next song, In the Flesh, sans question mark, Pink is going on stage with this persona that he was talking about in this last song, and I'm just going to say that I don't think this is his usual stage persona. I'd hope not. Yeah. In the Flesh is, on one hand, a nice full circle moment, because if you remember all the way back in part one, the first song in this entire album is called In the Flesh, with a question mark, and the first few lines of the song are actually exactly the same as In the Flesh, sans question mark. Hmm. The instrumentation, or the sound, of this song is also identical. It's very dark and very rock-heavy. So at this point, I do want to state a huge trigger warning for this song in particular. That bodes well. Most of the darker themes that I mentioned in the disclaimer make their biggest appearance in this song, Sans Suicide, 
I should also caveat that the next two songs still have quite a bit of racist and homophobic undertones, so you might be better off skipping to the song uh, titled Stop, which I venture will take about 15 minutes to get to, more or less. Now that we've got that out of the way, who is the stage persona who's going to sing this song that is very clearly offensive? Well, according to this persona, he is a stand-in for Pink, as Pink wasn't feeling well and stayed back at the hotel. And according to most reviewers, this persona is called Fascist Pink. I'll repeat what I said earlier, but in italics this time, that bodes well. No, it does not. Yeah. So this persona is representative of the darkest parts of Pink's psyche. His trauma and self-isolation and loathing all balled up into one personality. And this personality is the culmination of everything that Pink hates most. As shown through some of the lyrics and explicitly seen in the movie, Fascist Pink is literally a neo-Nazi. This obviously has explicit ties to Pink's father's death in World War II, likely at the hands of Nazis specifically, and throw in some of the trauma from school beatings and the strict schoolmaster, the resentment that Pink has towards his wife and his state during these emotional outbursts, and you basically get this guy. Without the movie visuals of fascist Pink literally in a Nazi reminiscent uniform, armband and all, on stage that is dressed to echo the setting of the Nuremberg rallies that Hitler used to hold, how does the song clue you into these Nazi qualities? <laughs> well, I'm so glad you didn't ask. First is the harsher rock tones that I mentioned earlier, which helps scream this authority. And then you have Pink's voice, which sounds more like a rally speech or shouting than actual singing. You also have the ideals that he spits to these concert goers. He basically calls out people who are black, Jewish, and gay, and more, using derogatory terms that I would not like to repeat here simply for my mental sanity. He also calls out to people who smoke weed, which is more of an inside joke given that most of the fans of Pink Floyd during the 80s were branded as pot smokers, much to the dismay of proper society. It's also interesting as a call-out given how many drugs that Pink, as in Pink the character, was on when he was singing this. Hmm. But similar to Hitler, Pink demands to find out where you fans really stand hmm. by shoving these deemed outcasts against the wall, and he ends the songs by proclaiming, if I had my way, I'd have you all shot, mostly referring to the outcasts. Hmm, I don't like that very much. Yeah, not great. You can definitely see the parallels to Hitler here. And I want to focus on a few particular parallels. First, Pink's status as this authoritarian dictator when he's up on the stage. If the audio is to be believed, a lot of Pink's fans go along with his commands and beliefs. And this does tie into how a lot of stars feel like and are often treated like demigods, especially during the times of rock and roll. Even today, you can see the parallels in stars who are just so full of themselves and treat waitstaff or fans poorly because they believe that they are above the commoners. <sighs> This album was actually born out of a time when Roger Waters, the guy who orchestrated this album, was so enraptured in this demigod status that he ended up spitting in the face of a fan. I don't know the specifics of whether it was at a concert or a private moment, but in interviews, Waters always emphasized that he did it just because he could. But he felt instant regret, like one of those moments when you realized, Oh shit, I screwed up, where has my life gone to take me to this moment? I mean, at least he acknowledges that he did it and that it was wrong. Uh, yeah, it was one of those life points where he did decide to turn his life around, thank heavens, and I can't tell you how successful it was long term, but success, I think. 
but a lot of this album was his way of exploring how he even got to such a deluded mindset. There is a kernel of truth that I think we can still learn today about putting stars on too high of a pedestal to where we'd literally do anything for them, say line a bunch of outcasts against the wall and start punching them. <laughs> Second, a lot of first-time listeners for this song think that it is a sign that Pink Floyd was genuinely a neo-Nazi band, or at least a super racist and homophobic one. It's not unfair, especially as someone who doesn't process lyrics necessarily very well, and is pretty bad at subtext. Totally fair, you are not the only one, which is why I did want to add this caveat. In reality, this is very opposite from the truth, and at the very least, nothing has come to my attention about the band members from The Walls era in particular being homophobic or racist, as many were actually supporters. Hmm, that's good. And for what it's worth, Pink Floyd did literally put on a concert of The Wall at the Mexican border in about 2019, or very early 2020 pre-pandemic, hmm. to protest the creation of the wall that was going to separate the United States and Mexico, which could definitely be seen as a way of them supporting minorities. Of course, I do want to caveat supporting one minority in one instance is not proof of holding no racist or homophobic ideals whatsoever. I just did think that it was a good example to bring up. That's fair. And I think that the lines about the pot smokers was a way to help clue listeners in, or fans in anyway, that this song was antithetical to everything that the band stood for. Waters has also explicitly said that this song, especially in the movie, was meant to bash the extremism of neo-Nazis and many interpret the song as him suggesting that most wars and conflicts start because of a cycle of repression, isolation, and destruction. You can immediately see the ties here with Hitler and World War II. There's a lot more really interesting lore behind the song, like the time a white supremacist group adopted the neo-Nazi logo in the Walls movie as their own. A logo that was literally made to call out how bad white supremacy is. But I will leave it here, ending my analysis with the question, how much of this concert was real and how much was made up in Pink's mind? On to the second song performed by Fascist Pink, Run Like Hell. This song is basically Pink warning all quote-unquote outsiders, which may or may not include us as listeners, <laughs> and threatening violence against them. This movie has a whole lot of amazing symbolism, like equating the people at Pink's rally, causing this violence to the school kids from side one who basically had no faces and were molded by authority. And there's also what looks like some visual and audio engineering ties to how neo-Nazism was also present in the KKK, and largely stems from right-wing conservatism. But for the sake of brevity, I will be focusing mostly on the lyrics. If you want to look further into this, just find the comprehensive wall analysis in my sources that I posted on Twitter, and it will give you everything you wanted to know and probably a few things you didn't. <laughs> if you listen carefully, a lot of the song's instrumentation borrows from the Another Brick in the Wall theme. Only now, it's more chaotic and accompanied by chanting, driving home the theme of how isolation and repression ultimately lead to this chaotic destruction. Interestingly, a lot of the song's lyrics, while likely calling out to these others who don't fit the perfect neo-Nazi mold, could also pertain to the younger Pink from the previous sides. Fascist Pink accuses people of wearing a disguise, having an empty smile and hungry heart, and having dirty feelings and a guilty past. As we literally saw just a few songs ago, Pink constantly feels like he has to put on a disguise for his fans, and the empty smile and hungry heart could also refer to how his hollow sense of individuality and lust for fame, largely portrayed in the songs of Psych 2, were showing through, 
and the dirty feelings and guilty past go back to side one, where Pink had his own time of sexual exploration, prompting his mother to tell him she wouldn't, quote-unquote, let anyone dirty get through. Pink also has a lot to be guilty of in his past, which has really started to boil over here. And this again reminds me of parallels with Hitler, who strove for a perfect idealized race that really didn't look anything like him. And his biases came from feelings of bitterness and self-isolation that he then pinned on others. Hypocrisy, anyone? Uh, yeah, that's basically the point. Though I think that ultimately this song is a commentary on anyone who lets their bitterness and isolation get the better of them, and it signifies Pink's turn from a passive character who bad things just happen to and it's not his fault, to the persecutor who takes action and lashes back against the world. Are either of these a healthy way of coping? Hell no! Hmm. But Pink is no longer acting like a helpless victim, and this shift is what allows him to ultimately go through a later trial and actually change, hopefully for the better. Hmm. Waiting for the Worms is the next song, and this is where the theme of mental decay is most directly stated. And the worms are back. I love worms! The worms are symbols of mental decay! This song seems to mostly be led by fascist Pink, but some of the lines are indicative of the quote-unquote old Pink, who we've gotten to know in the first three sides showing back up. We're also back to a more choral version of singing, where Roger Waters kind of layers his voice on top of itself so it sounds like multiple people. And in the wall, this is usually a good indication that Pink is likely saying these lyrics in his head rather than out loud. In Waiting for the Worms, Pink finds that his isolation isn't quite as fun and cushy as he thought it would be. That much is obvious from the song's tone, which I can only describe as a prison blues song to start off. Uh, this description isn't totally accurate, but I think it perfectly conveys the situation. Much of the song is Pink sitting behind his wall, waiting. And waiting is a huge theme. You're waiting for the worms of mental decay and waiting for fascist Pink to make good on his promises of weeding out the weaklings and strengthening the strain by repeating a second holocaust down to the same methods of killing these others. Mm. Which I will not elaborate on here, but they are explicitly said in the lyrics. Only this time, rather than Germany, it is to see Britannia become an empire. You mean the one that was already formed and destroyed? <laughs> I really didn't want to have to say make Britannia great again, but you're really forcing my hand. This part of the song is sung with a military drumbeat behind it, and the chorus sounds more like a collection of soldiers waiting to obey fascist Pink's commands and follow the worms of mental decay. It is bleak and, again, explicitly racist. <sighs> and I think that the saddest part is that I have heard and seen the exact lyrics of this song play out literally within this year alone. <sighs> Things like smashing in windows and doors to assault people of color or LGBTQ members. The rhetoric of, would you like to send our colored cousins home again? Hmm, don't like that very much. Neither do I, but there was the lyric. I think that this song is the most disturbing in this album because I have seen it play out so often. The main message is that people in this cycle of self-isolation and repression are the ones who are most likely to follow these hateful narratives. I can especially think in terms of people who are often teenagers who are gay or bisexual or part of LGBTQ, but because they grew up in an environment where that wasn't accepted, they repressed that part of themselves and then viciously bullied anyone in their school if they even looked like they might be LGBTQ or reminded them of themselves. Oh yeah, that's a whole thing. Oh yeah. 
Well, Pink is, in fact, white and cisgender, though it is debatable whether he is straight based on the whole sexual exploration thing. But his isolation and repression and other aspects of his life are what cause this hatred. And that's likely the cause for many others who follow these narratives, again, white supremacists who tend to be cisgender and white and usually straight. And that is really the point that this song is trying to get across. All of this talk of following the worms and committing genocide eventually breaks Pink, the old Pink, who screams for fascist Pink to stop. And stop is fittingly the title of this next song. So the only instrument really playing here is the piano accompanying vocals with lighter chords as the real Pink, not fascist Pink, is revealing how tired he is of this cycle and his mental wall. He wants to go home and take off his uniform, which is not only a literal metaphor of changing out of his fascist persona, but also an emotional one of wanting to leave behind his mental baggage and the bricks in the wall that led him to his current mental state. However, he says that he is staying because he wants to know whether he, not the world, was actually responsible for this mental wall. Huh. Gross. And the main theme of this song is choice. The oppression and violence spurred on by fascist Pink were stopped by alt-Pink deciding to make a change and actually confront himself, likely to better himself. Everyone has the potential to become a fascist Pink and give in to the world's hatred and vitriol if they let themselves. Similarly, everyone always has the potential to better themselves and grow in a positive direction, rather than hiding behind a mask and fostering such vicious ideals. This is true! The last thing I'll touch on is whether the fascist Pink songs were all in Pink's mind or if he actually performed them and rallied his fans into committing a lot of violent crimes. <laughs> Given that we hear an expectant crowd cheering at the beginning of Stop, it is likely that he hasn't even gone on stage to perform yet. But what really confirms this theory is the movie. In Stop, Pink is in the bathroom stall backstage, lacking the neo-Nazi attire he was wearing in the last four songs, and a security guard, after he hears Pink mumbling, goes to push open the stall door. Basically, Pink is acting much more in line with someone who has taken as many drugs as he actually has, and definitely not someone who just gave a white supremacist song speech to an eager crowd. Oh, that's good. On to the trial. And this is where the trigger warnings for a lot of the more homophobic and racist things end. So the music video for this song, which is the same one as in the movie, is an absolute trip. If you like weird cartoons and loads of symbology and you aren't averse to crude visuals, I absolutely recommend that you watch this just for the experience. I think I'm good, but that's fair. Anyone listening who wants to know? It's on YouTube. However, this song alone has a lot to analyze, so I will not be going into that music video. This song is the album's climax, and the plot is literally in the title. Pink holds a mental trial to see how accountable he is for building his wall of isolation. I mean, at least he's acknowledging that he might be at fault. Finally some growth, we love to see that. Yeah. Pink is judged by Worm, the ultimate symbol of mental decay, and his crime is quote-unquote showing feelings of an almost human nature. <laughs> Which, likely because of how it's said, always makes me laugh a little bit. <laughs> 
The real crime, however, is that Pink has spent his life avoiding human emotions as much as possible. He's finally feeling these emotions and he's realizing, hey, maybe suppressing these was a shit way to live. Yeah. You know, just avoiding emotions, bottling up all your issues until they reach peak fascism? Not a good move. Would not recommend. Do yeah. not be like Pink. Well, in a theatrical display accompanied by an equally dramatic score, different figures in Pink's life make arguments for and against his crime. The schoolmaster laments that he could have beat him into submission, but arts and creativity let him keep his ideals. Oh, darn. This testimony is a reminder of the brutal conditions of Pink's childhood and the people who tried to control him. But it's also showing how far Pink has fallen to be able to go from this idealistic child who still believes in individuality to this basically dictatorial schoolmaster as fascist Pink. Next up is Pink's wife, who gives him a truly deserved lambasting. She argues that he should have talked with her more often rather than self-isolate. Very true and correct. Absolutely spitting facts. We stand, man. We do. And the line, have you broken up any homes lately, is also a pretty good confirmation that Pink did in fact cheat on his wife. This hasn't really been super clear within the past few sides, but here we have pretty direct confirmation. It also alludes to the fact that Pink emotionally walling himself off is what likely drove his wife to adultery. I'd still like to say cheating is not excusable by your husband being emotionally distanced, but for heaven's sake you two need to get a divorce, this marriage clearly is not going well. The last person to testify is Pink's mother, who begs the judge to let her take him home and laments why did he have to leave her. Again, this is showing how Pink's mom was incredibly overprotective, potentially helicopter parenty, and there are two angles for this testimony. One that some bricks, like being born to a helicopter or dead parent, aren't really in your control. They're going to be mm -hmm. helicoptery or dead either way. Yeah. And the other is that Pink's mother was a little overprotective, but ultimately loved Pink, and he actually just greatly over-exaggerated how much she smothered him with her love, which plays into the unreliable narrator angle. I mean, even if someone loves you, it doesn't mean that they can't be abusive in some ways. Oh, definitely. It's more just that she might have been a helicopter parent out of love, which obviously is not healthy, again, playing into that toxic mentality, which is incredibly important to bring to the forefront. Mm -hmm. Or it could be that she was actually just a pretty normal non-toxic parent who Pink pretended was toxic as an excuse to self-isolate, which also isn't good. Hmm. Well, throughout this trial, Pink is interjecting again and again, saying he has gone insane, just crazy over the rainbow. And this is likely a result of him constructing his wall. An interesting parallel to solitary confinement, I believe, since it has been proven to make people actually go insane. Yeah, there are actually some references to the whole bars and the window thing, so yeah, he basically built his own mental prison and went insane in it. It actually does check out with those studies, um, and yes, solitary has been linked to mental illnesses in general, though I think it is more than just insanity, to no one's surprise. Oh, wow. In the end, the judge decides that Pink's deepest fear and greatest hope for salvation must be carried out as a proper sentence to punish him. And the wall is torn down, basically smashed apart. I feel like tearing down your own mental walls is not this easy or fast. Oh, in reality, absolutely not. But you do have to get that theatrical moment, man. <laughs> mm, that's true. <laughs> that leaves us with the question. 
Hold on, you said that it's debated whether Pink dies at the end of this. How does he die? Well, the answer is a little complicated. In one way, Pink tears down his well so he is reborn into a self who has not experienced the molding and decay of the wall, so his fascist persona, and to a large extent the Pink that we've come to know, did die for the sake of a new, far better off Pink to emerge. I mean, if you built up mental walls and you tear them down, you're not gonna be the person who you were without the walls. Like, all experiences change who you are. Oh, absolutely. This is just more a biblical or I'm a new person now emerging from this trauma sort of thing. Mm. In reality, it would absolutely be that the wall is still affecting him. Just based off of your past affects your future. <laughs> Yeah, so it's kind of like a flood story cleansing idea. Exactly. There were a lot of biblical references that I've kind of skipped over in this analysis just because this is already so long I did not need to make this longer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's where you'd honestly leave it. Uh, just with He Is Reborn. If you didn't want to hyperanalyze other Pink Floyd albums, <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are more of them. And in another album called The Final Cut, which was also heavily influenced by Roger Waters and included a very similar character to Pink, there was war, trauma, isolation, and all of that jazz. While there were some materials from making the wall, like song lyrics, that were even included in The Final Cut. And at the end, this character is about to make the quote-unquote final cut and end his life. If the phone hadn't rang at that moment, and according to that character, he never had the courage to take his own life again. Because of the parallels, a lot of people believe that Pink did attempt to commit suicide because his wall came down so fast. Though I will say that most people do believe that he did survive his attempt. Some people even think that the final cut is some sort of sequel to The Wall, but that sounds like a whole conversation for another day that could easily take as long as this episode itself. Or possibly never. Hey! So, did Pink die spiritually, sorta? Uh, physically, likely not. There's a possibility that he attempted suicide, but that is up in the air and up to fan interpretation. So, last song, Outside the Wall. This ends things on a rather hopeful note, I think, and kind of takes us outside of Pink's perspective just to a general what is the moral of the story. Its message is that even if you don't realize it, there are people who love and care about you who want to tear down your wall of isolation. And many of them will even do their best to help you if you do show that you are trying. Exactly. You can't expect everyone to be knocking on your wall forever if you don't come out because it is a huge emotional investment and it can be tiring. Mm -hmm. These walls can be small and personal, like one person's isolation like Pink's, or they can be larger issues like racism, homophobia, socioeconomic inequalities, and there will always be social barriers that are brought up because of fear, pain, isolation, and repression. But it's our job as people and communities to work on tearing those walls down, whether it's our own wall or someone else's. Hopefully, with each new generation, these larger issues and quote-unquote social pricks will fade a little more. Seems like a pretty big hopefully looking at what all is going down now, to be honest. Yeah, the 2022 lens is not as bright and hopeful as a lot of these issues are super systemic. And it seems like these problems are merely evolving with the times rather than actually being solved for, which is not great. I believe we can do better. Absolutely. It just will take more of us and more of us trying harder. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's it. We've done it. We've gone through the birth, the life, and the spiritual rebirth of Pink, the social commentaries, 
and the personal commentary of how Roger Waters drew so much of this inspiration from his own life. Woohoo! I want to leave you all with a few final messages. First, if you haven't already, listen to The Wall. I have no clue how you've watched two hours of me rambling about this if you haven't already listened to the album, but hopefully these insights will help you when you listen to the lyrics and it helps the sounds resonate a lot more. Yeah, if you haven't listened to it, you felt exactly what it was to be me during this four-part series. Second, I want to give a huge shout-out to my prog rock professor for making this course. It covered so much more than The Wall. It's basically a passion project of his, and I learned so much taking it. I would not have made the series without his classes and inspiration. Mm. So, thank you so much. Woohoo! And finally, as I mentioned before, a lot of issues in The Wall are still massive issues today. Social issues aside, self-isolation is an even bigger problem than ever with online learning and, well, everything that's happened over the past three years in particular. Yay. I know for me, all of my classes spontaneously became permanently remote for the entire quarter when I was just a few days into it. And I thought it was supposed to be fully in person, so thank you, COVID. And not interacting with a single person, like, face-to-face outside of my sweetmates took such a toll, man. Yeah. You, I mean, you did talk to me. Yeah, but not super in person. There was one day, but um, for the most part, we were not even in the same state. This is true. So, I do just want to say, for those of you who are struggling with any of these issues or know someone who does seem to be self-isolating, do reach out, no matter which side of the wall you are on. It is entirely up to the other person, usually when you are that person inside the wall, whether you do anything with that. But making the effort to reach out, regardless of which side you are on, can be so invaluable. There are people who care about you, but it is up to you to accept that help. Just like with therapy, it's only really effective if the person undergoing therapy wants it. This is very true. And as the wall showed, there is a brighter side, and sometimes you really have to struggle to get there, but I promise it is worth it in the end. Agreed. And, at long last, that wraps up this episode. The rest of the season will mostly be led by Dan, but don't worry, I will still be present with my natural charm and wit to tag along as we cover some more creation stories. Yeehaw! So, farewell, and I'll catch you next time.